Author Jason Everett argues that hardly anyone today thinks about sex. Like, what? No way. He continues. We joke about it, dream about it, watch movies about it, listen to music about it, lust about it, but we don't ever really think about sex. Welcome to church this morning. (laughs) Today I want to invite you to think more deeply about sex. And here's why. Because sex is, and I would argue always has been, one of the great spiritual formation issues in the history of the church. Sex is not random or disconnected from our spirituality. It's actually a very integrated part of it. Because few issues on planet Earth form, inform, and deform our faith, our journey with God, like our sexuality. So some of you may be thinking, I thought we were doing a study in the book of Revelation. Why are we talking about this? Guess what? One of the churches that gets a letter from Jesus in the book of Revelation has this as one of the pivot points in their letter. So today we're going to read the letter from Jesus through John to the church in Thyatira. And in case you want to know where Thyatira is, I think I put a map up as well. There are these seven churches of Asia Minor, and we're kind of going around the horn, around the circle. This is the fourth of the seven letters to the ancient churches in Asia Minor, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And if you're new with us, uh, this may feel like a hard dive in, uh, but we've been for the last month now looking at this book, looking at these letters The last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. I know some people have a real aversion to the book of Revelation. Like, that's just weird, bizarre, crazy stuff. These opening chapters are really profound. We're told at the beginning of the book, there's the revelation of Jesus, that John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, was exiled on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, And on one Sunday, on the Lord's Day, he was worshiping the Lord in the Spirit when he has this vision of Jesus, a a vision of the resurrected Lord from head to toe in full glory. Jesus shows up and tells John, "I I want you to write seven letters, seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor because there's something I want them to know. I want them to see me in my glory and I want them to hear from me. Words? For virtually every church, words of comfort and encouragement and words of challenge and confrontation. And I would encourage us to be able to receive both from Jesus. If if we can only receive encouragement from Jesus and not challenge from Jesus, I would ask which Jesus we're serving. But that we would be able to receive both what he has to say, encouragement and challenge. So, I've been saying all month that these letters are very similar in that they carry a very similar pattern. They're structured very much the same. 
The vision of Jesus, some words of encouragement, some words of challenge, a call to their community to respond. And this letter is very much like the other ones, very similar. But today I'm going to tackle this passage actually quite differently than the other ones. In fact, I'm going to do that on purpose. I'm going to spend less time on the nuances, the context, the Old Testament connections, not because I want to avoid them, but in fact, it's because I want to chase a few things more deeply. I feel a measure of pastoral responsibility today as we read the letter to the church of Thyatira. And here's why. Let's listen to the opening. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. If you have a Bible, open up. If not, they'll be also on the screen here. Revelation 2, 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's great! (laughs) That is awesome! That's a good way to begin. That's quite the commendation from Jesus. That's quite the affirmation. In fact, I would say if you pull out the church grading scale, like that church is doing quite well. Maybe an A. Jesus says, I know your works. They're not lazy. They're not just a bunch of thinkers or academics that think about things but never get anything done. He says, I know your works. They're doers of the word, not just hearers only. He says, I know your love. I know your faith. I know that you serve and you serve well. I know that you have had patient endurance. You've gone through some stuff and you haven't given up and you've pressed through patiently enduring. And then he says, unlike some who maybe start strong and then peter out, he says, no, actually you've gotten stronger as you've gone along and your latter works are even better than your early days. Like, nice job, Thyatira, represent That's good. Love and faith and service, works, good good things, activity, latter works. It's beautiful. You might even be tempted to think that this was the perfect church. They've got it nailed. And then comes verse 20. Again, encouragement, comfort, and challenge. And here's the word of challenge, verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So like almost on a dime, the letter flips, and he starts talking about this woman named Jezebel. Now, in case you were wondering, maybe some of you, that sounds familiar, there is an Old Testament woman by the name of Jezebel. She shows up in the books of First and Second Kings. 
But most people agree, most scholars agree, that when Jesus, through John, writes this letter to Thyatira and calls out a woman named Jezebel, most agree that the woman's name in this church was not Jezebel. But that there's a type or there's, there's a, um, a similarity in her life and story that allows Jesus to try and draw a connection point back. You see, the Old Testament Jezebel was the daughter of a Syrophoenician priest king, a Canaanite, not a people of the Hebrews. She worshiped other gods. And she, Jezebel, married a king in Israel named Ahab. And as soon as Jezebel enters the storyline, things go south for the people of Israel, in Ahab's life and everyone's life. It goes out of control. Idolatry, sexual immorality, murder, persecution of the priests, prophets. Jezebel becomes, in many ways, an embodiment of evil, as some have summarized that she becomes a representative of all that is crafty, malicious, revengeful, and cruel. Jezebel literally was hell-bent on defiling the worship of the people of Israel, and she would do whatever it took to derail them by any means possible, including sexual morality. So I could spend our time today, there's plenty of Jezebel stories in the Old Testament. I could spend our time going back to First and Second Kings and reading all the backstory, but I'm not going to do that today. If that wants to be your Sunday afternoon reading, just Google Jezebel, First and Second Kings, and you can read more about her. But in writing then to Thyatira, Jesus says he has a few things against them, and most of his concern centers on this Jezebel figure in the church. And Jesus explains that she calls herself a prophet, speaking on behalf of God, but the biggest challenge is that she is teaching people in the community to practice sexual immorality and idolatry. She's actively undermining God's vision of sex and leading the community astray. And Jesus says, as a church community, my problem is with Jezebel and the fact that you're tolerating it. That she's doing her thing, you're like, oh, that's fine. No big deal. And if you keep reading, I'm not going to even finish this letter to Thyatira, but if you keep reading, Jesus is pretty fired up about the situation. In fact, he is so fired up that he offers a very, very stern rebuke coupled with serious consequences, serious to the point of death. So this letter got me thinking, and pastorally thinking. While there's a ton that could be chased down here this morning, It makes me ask this question, why is this issue of sex or sexual immorality such a big deal? Because it could be argued, especially in our culture, come on, man, why why nitpick on that, right? Especially in this church context, so much good. Their work and their love and their faith and their service and their latter, like like this is a picture of so many beautiful things. Like why nitpick on something like sexuality? Why make a big stink 
over something that seems so small. Isn't that prudish and picky or puritanical, making a mountain out of a molehill? Aren't there bigger problems in the world than bigger fish to fry? Why do Christians seem to have this obsession with sex? And why do Christians seem to get in the way of sexual freedom? Now, I'll admit that the answer to that question is not found in Revelation chapter 2. But I want to provide some answers to that question because I think it's legit for followers of Jesus in 2024 in our context to understand why, why would we even talk about this? Again, like I said at the beginning, I believe that sex is one of the great spiritual formation issues of our time, and it has always been the case in the way that it forms, informs, and deforms our journey with God. So to those who may be wondering why Jesus would call out a church solely on that issue, I want to offer you four thoughts. Why do Christians make such a big deal about the Christian sexual ethic? But first, let me define something for you. Let me first define what Jesus is talking about, what his beef is, what his problem is. He calls out sexual immorality. The Greek word there is the word porneia. It shows up in verb form. It also shows up in noun form. But in Revelation 2, verse 20, he says that Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. And that's the verb form, pornuo. Then in verse 21, he says, she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. That's the noun form, porneia. Like, what does that word even mean? Maybe you can pick up and hear our English word, pornography, that comes maybe out of that stream. Some translate that fornication. Other places translate it sexual immorality. Others point out that the root of that word means to buy, and it was, there's a, a meaning of that word that was very much tied to, to buying sexuality or sex acts with a prostitute. So there's a tie there. In Greek literature, it had a very strong tie toward having sex with a prostitute. Old Testament scholars argue that that word is used a lot in Leviticus 18, and some would say that whenever you see the word show up in the New Testament, that if you, if you double-clicked on it, like at the hyperlink, if you double-clicked on the word pornea in the New Testament, it would take you back to Leviticus 18 and some of the prohibitions given in Leviticus 18. But ultimately, this word is really a wide-use word. It has, has, has a wide application. Some call it a junk drawer kind of word. It covers lots of ground. It's a big umbrella kind of a word. Uh, Preston Sprinkle says that porneia involves every kind of sexual sin outside of a male-female marriage. And I know that that's a controversial statement in our culture. Any sexual sin outside of a male-female marriage. And again, those who are on the sexual freedom side would say, man, that's just really limiting. That's really narrow-minded. That's really oppressive. It's restrictive. But I will say that's exactly what Jesus is saying in his letter to the church in Thyatira. Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and the church is like, yeah, that's not a big deal. No problem. 
Why is that a big deal? Four thoughts. And I'm just going to be clear. I've got some extended quotes today that I didn't trust putting into Google Translate to throw the Spanish and the French. So I, most of my quotes today are going to be in English. So my apologies to those of you who are still learning the language. Um, I'll try and read slow, um, but I didn't trust putting that into Google Translate. So first of four thoughts, sexual immorality divides the whole human person from integration. It, it pulls apart what was not meant to be pulled apart. Meaning, we live in an age of impersonal sex, and we live in the age of Tinder. We live in the age of sexting. We live in the age of hookup culture. But history tells us this is not new. It's a different expression. In Thyatira, it involved pagan temples, sexual rituals, and spiritual prostitutes. Very intermingled. But in either case, whether you're talking about Thyatira or Olympia, I want to point out that both of those expressions actively severs the connection between the physical body and the emotional Author Nancy Piercy, she says that hookup culture creates a drastic divide between physical intimacy and emotional intimacy, and it teaches young people not to reckon with someone's personhood in the full sense, and it pulls apart. It's just a physical act without paying attention to the emotional part, the intimate part in that direction. The popular idea being that sex is simply a bodily urge, a physical appetite. It's not moral. It's just something that exists. It's not bad or good. It's just biology. It's just physicality. It's just a natural appetite like food or drink. And if you're hungry, you eat. And if you're thirsty, you drink. And if you have this urge, then have the urge. Act on it. No big deal. But the result is to divide what was never meant to be divided, a dividing between the physical and the emotional that was never meant to be separated, and the whole person gets bypassed in the process. Personhood gets passed in the process. Here's some of my quotes. So this is an older article in uh, August of 2015, so this is eight years old. Vanity Fair published an article called Tinder and the Hookup Culture Promotion. Uh, it's still online. It's been retitled, Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. Not a Christian article, not written by Christians, not advocating a biblical worldview, just interviewing people about their use of Tinder, candidly. Guys who view, excuse, guys view everything as a competition, this one who's being interviewed, he elaborates with his deep, reassuring voice, who slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up a hundred girls you slept with in a year. It's instant gratification, says Jason26, a Brooklyn photographer, and a validation of your own attractiveness by just like swiping your thumb on an app. You see some pretty girl and you swipe, and it's like 
Oh, she thinks you're attractive too, so it's really addicting, and you just find yourself mindlessly doing it. Sex has become so easy, says John, 26, a marketing executive in New York. I can go on my phone right now, and no doubt I can find someone I can have sex with this evening, probably before midnight. A couple ladies, they start out with send me nudes, says Reese, or they say something like I'm looking for something quick within the next 10 or 20 minutes, are you available? Okay, you're a mile away, tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. I think that iPhones and dating apps have really changed the way that dating happens for our generation, says Stephanie, the one with an armful of bracelets. There is no dating, there's no relationship, says Amanda, the tall, elegant one. They're rare. You can have a fling that could last like seven, eight months and you could never actually call someone your boyfriend. Hooking up is a lot easier. No one gets hurt. Well, not on the surface. If he texts you before midnight, he actually likes you as a person. If it's after midnight, it's not just for your, or it's just for your body, says Amanda. It's not, she says, that women don't want to have sex. Who doesn't want to have sex? But it feels bad when they're like, see ya. It's a contest to see who cares less. And guys win a lot at caring less. Man, that breaks my heart. Amanda says, sex should stem from emotional intimacy. And it's the opposite with us right now. And I think it really is kind of destroying female self-images, says Fallon. It's body first, personality second, says Stephanie. Honestly, I feel like the body doesn't even matter to them as long as you're willing, says Reese. It's that bad. But if you say any of this out loud, it's like you're weak, you're not independent, you've somehow missed the whole memo about third wave feminism, says Amanda. And so you hear kind of what's, what's underneath what's being expressed here. It's, it's all about the phys- it's just a physical act. It's about release, technique, gratification, and the physical and the emotion have been pulled apart and severed. And I just want to remind us, friends, that sex was never designed to operate that way. And neither was the human body. But it's not just Tinder or hookup culture. It happens in pornography. It, ha- it happens in the sexual liberation movement of just sleep with whoever you want to. It's no big deal. You are pulling apart the human. Second thought, sexual immorality distorts the true story of the world. Some have said that the Christian story is a love story. It's a story that begins with a marriage in the beginning and it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Deep within every human heart, regardless of who you are, there is a desire, there is a longing for connection. Every human being is longing to be seen, to be fully known. One of my favorite quotes is from an author named Kurt Thompson. I use this one all the time. He says that every human being is born into the world looking for someone looking for them. Every human being comes into the world, born in the world, looking for someone, looking for them. And it's true with babies, it's true with little kids, and it's true with adults. We are all looking for someone, looking for us. And we have this strong desire to be seen, known, understood unconditionally. This is fundamental to our sexuality, which goes beyond mere physical activity. Philip Yancey, in his book, Rumors of Another World, he says the very word sex 
comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever, and sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within as a longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. That's what's actually underneath all of our drives and desires. It's actually a longing for union with the God who made us, with the God who loves us. In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, they were naked and unashamed. Fully known, fully seen, fully loved. And now this side of Eden, we are naked and ashamed. But the true story of the world is that there is a a God who sees us, knows us, loves us, pursues us, and has done everything in heaven and on earth to be in union with us. And so the act of sex is actually a physical reminder. It's a signpost pointing to that which we ache for, long for, and that's union with God. Your cravings, desires, sexual appetites are pointing to someone deeper, to the one who actually laid his life down for us, to make us his bride. The true story of the world is a love story, a marriage story, a union story, that Jesus is zealous for his bride and that Jesus is coming back one day that we may be with him. Sexual immorality begins to sever, distort the true story of the world. Thirdly, sexual immorality defrauds the body's rightful purpose. Again, this to some sounds like crazy talk. Man, Paul's getting fundamentalist with us here. Have you read 1 Corinthians 6 before? Paul writes to the people in Corinth, a very deeply sexualized culture, in a city where they were regularly invited to participate in pagan sex practices at the local temple. 1 Corinthians 6.13, Paul says, the body is not meant for porneia, sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And he goes on and says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 18 Flee from porneia, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There's a lot going on there, but some of those phrases stop me in my tracks. Your body is meant for the Lord. 
your body, not random accident, not cosmic accident, your body created on purpose, your body made for the Lord. I don't often think that way. I think that my body's for me. And while every sin can be covered through the finished work of Jesus, praise God. He says there's something happening in this kind of sin that is a sin against your body, the body that belongs to Jesus. And again, that root word of porneia means to buy or purchase. And Paul is playing on that by saying, this is not about you buying, selling your body because I've already actually paid for your body with my own blood, and, and your body belongs to me. I'm, your body belongs for me and me for you. That, that's actually what you're made for. This is actually a higher view of the body. It's Paul's appeal to them to wake up to how precious and valuable your body is. Whole bodies, mind, emotion, spirit, flesh, your body is intended for God. And Jesus looks down at his people in love at your body. That's just, sometimes we don't have categories for this. We sang the song already this morning. He is jealous for me. I don't think we understand that. He is zealous for you. Last thing, (laughs) I got time for this. Sexual immorality deforms love's true bent. I've referred to this a few times. This is from St. Augustine, the North African church father. He defined sin not as a list of moral rights or wrongs, but he defined sin as, this is Latin, incurvatus ense, which means a human curved in on themselves. That's his diagnosis of the problem. When our loves and affections bend in, cave in, curve in on ourselves, which really begins to get at the heart of the problem of sexual morality is what we've done to love is we've distorted it and we've bent it into ourselves. That love was meant to be bent toward God and others, and we've bent it in on ourselves. I've already jumped in the deep end of the pool today, so why not one more controversial quote? This is from C.S. Lewis on masturbation. (laughs) For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself. Again, this is gendered language. This could be him or her, but he's, he's answering a letter to a guy. Leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another. And finally, in children, even grandchildren, and, and turns it back. Sending the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. 
For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among these shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided, as all things are to be avoided, which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. I find those haunting words. Love's bent inside the prison of ourselves when we have been made to experience a love toward God and others. Love in the prison is no love at all. Okay. Maybe I need to clarify a couple things before I close. Jesus writes this letter to the church of Thyatira. And I would argue that Jesus, Paul, and the entire storyline of the Bible has nothing good to say about sexual immorality. Jesus has super strong words against it. But Revelation 2, this message to this church specifically, must be properly understood. First of all, I don't think this message is primarily for those, especially in the room today, that do not know and love Jesus. That's, he's not talking really to you. And I would also say that this message is not primarily aimed at those who maybe have been abused sexually and are trying to make sense of your own sexuality. I would even argue this message is not aimed at those who sexually struggle which would be every stinking person in this room who in life it can be a battle for sexual wholeness. This message is not aimed at those who are sexually confused. Revelation 2, this church, Jesus is writing, Jezebel is warned Specifically to those who are in the church actively, repeatedly teaching a sexual story that undermines the truth. It's aimed at leadership. I just want to be clear today. How does Jesus respond to the sexual sinner or to those who are sexually broken looking for help? To those who feel trapped in the weight of sexual sin, How does Jesus respond to them? All throughout the Gospels, I can give you story after story. Jesus responds with deep compassion to the woman who was caught in adultery. Mind you, that's even an unfair story because the guy isn't even named or present in what's going down there. But the woman who's caught in the act, the very act of adultery, what is Jesus? Jesus responds to her with compassion. Jesus draws near to her when everybody else wants to kill her. And Jesus says, where, where are those who condemn you? And she's like, oh, they left. 
And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's this tenderness to this woman. Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's had five husbands, and the guy she's living with isn't even her husband. Jesus very humanly engages her, loves her, speaks truth to her, and her life flips. You see, Jesus specializes in kintsugi art. Have you ever seen kintsugi art before? It's it's this pottery where someone takes bowls that have been broken and puts them back together again, but the seams of what has been broken is gold and silver. It's really beautiful art. If anyone wants to buy me some, you're welcome to buy me some. (laughs) Here's the beauty of Kintsugi art, is that after the break and after the repair, it's even more valuable. This is what Jesus does, is he engages those who are willing to be honest enough with themselves and honest enough with God to receive his forgiveness and his grace and his restoring work to put together back whole again that which sin has devastated. So it's one thing to sin and to stumble and to blow. Like you could read Revelation 2 and be like, man, Jesus is coming out here just to kill some people. (laughs) He He is... both compassionate with those who are struggling in sexual sin. But he also has conviction to those who are leading others, saying, do not lead people astray into that which is for their destruction. But even in in Revelation 2, he says, I've repeatedly warned Jezebel, and she will not repent. He even says, I've got some drastic measures that are going to be taken unless she repents. There's this invitation. There's this warning. Keep repenting. Come on. I'm I'm coming for you. But there will be a point in time where it's too late. Jesus says he's given her several chances, and she refuses. And Jesus does not tolerate intentionally misleading others in this area. We are made to tell this true story of God with every part of our lives, sexuality included. And those who lock people up in deception, Jesus won't tolerate it because he cares about this peace. He cares about his bride. He cares about his people. He cares about this very tender, sensitive issue in our life. He cares for us. He's zealous for us. He's jealous for us. He's laid his life for us. He's coming back again for us. So all who sexually sin, which again is everybody in this room, Come to Jesus and discover his compassionate grace. But may we as a church not tolerate a sexual storyline that leads people away from his heart. That's not, that's not good and that's not kind. 
the stakes are too high. The formation of our souls is at hand. And all of us are precious to the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you know I didn't want to preach this sermon today. Because I, I know our stories. And I also, Lord, I know how this lands in our context and culture. But Jesus, I, I want to be faithful to you and your heart. And when I pray, believing, I speak believing that the truth will set us free. So I pray that you would lead us deeper into truth. May we find the abundance of your mercy and grace. May we see your compassionate eyes. But also, Lord, may we see your holy zeal that you don't put up with. Those that would lead others astray. Lord, we don't want to tolerate things that you don't have a heart for. So God, I know that takes a lot of wisdom. Give us wisdom. God, I know in this room there are people who feel just an overwhelming wave of shame this morning for even sitting through this last 45 minutes. I thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you would continue to reform our sexual, spiritual story to be more and more aligned with you. May we see you as you are. May we understand you for who you are. May we receive from you. Would you set us free from the prison within? May you bend us back in the shape of true love, cross-shaped love. And may you set us free, God, in real ways, in these real lives and real stories. God, we, we submit ourselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.